So the question, who is Jesus, and the, the centrality of this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And our life with God specifically depends on Jesus. And uh, we're going to think today about the corporate Jesus, meaning to say not corporate in the sense of a big company like IBM or Amazon or Coca-Cola, but the fact that the Jesus of the Bible is not in fact simply himself in isolation, but uh, the Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus who incorporates, that's to say, to makes into a body and affects a whole now, the NASUWT, National Association of Schoolmasters and Union of Women Teachers, and he said that if I was going to um, live next door in the house that we then owned, I had to join the NAS. I think, on reflection, he was joking. But, uh, uh, but he, uh, uh, I, I took it seriously and joined the... He stands in heaven and says, these may be true, but I demand that the charges be dismissed because they've already been paid for. And he stands in heaven interceding for us and uh, saying, I demand, I respectfully demand that my client be released immediately from all the guilt, shame, accusations of sin because it's all being dealt with. So we thank God for the representation of Christ. We thank God that Jesus is our representative. Union goes further than this. Okay, that was representation. Second idea, substitution. Now, that's a little bit different. Substitution begins to involve the idea of exchange in some shape or form. So, in substitution, uh, we are standing in a certain place and Christ pushes us out of the way and he stands there instead. He substitutes himself. So, you get substitution in football. Um, some of you know about football, how it happens, that uh, there's a footballer who... Uh, for one reason or another, they say, uh, you, you can stop playing, get off the pitch, put on a substitute, and the substitute plays instead. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Uh, footballer goes off the pitch, and the, the new one plays in that person's place. So again, it is a, there's a distance. There has to be a distance. They can't go separated by the, the process of substitution. And this is one main way of understanding what Jesus did on the cross. In other words, the atonement. Uh, and uh, it, it, you could work it like this, that in our sin, we push him off the throne because we say we're going to be king of our own lives. We're going to decide what we're going to do, just like Ellen was saying. Uh, we push Christ off the throne, but uh, Christ pushes us off the cross we ought to be on the cross and he pushes us off the cross and says, I'll go into that place instead of you. He bears the penalty instead of us. And there are many texts that speak in this exchanging substitutionary way. So Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds we are healed. And you see there's an exchanging process there. The, uh, the, the transgressions are ours, but he's pierced for them. And uh, the, uh, by his... So there's a sub, that's a, the, the, uh, the very powerful bit 
idea of substitution. Of course, to be careful and make sure we've understood it our sin for a limited period. But we don't gain his righteousness for a limited period by his work on the cross. But I would say that union goes further than this. So let's look at the idea of union. So union, we all share together in a structured way. So we're not a Buddhist sort of mass of everything all in together. The structure, but you win. That's right, isn't it? They don't each individually have to score the winning goal because they're in a, a team together. One person scores the winning goal, they all win. And same sort of thing for a union, uh, a trade union. If a payroll is struck, then we all benefit. So it, it, there's uh, that union idea there. And you think of your own body. You're, you, 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 you wouldn't get your feet mixed up with your hands, would you? They're different. Yes? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but you, you know perfectly well you have one body. And there is your... Your body is one, so there's a, a union there. There is a, so it's all shared and it's all together. There isn't a sort of distance thing, it, there's a, a combination thing. And I forgot to look up the exact title of this something limb syndrome. Uh, and there is currently where, uh, this is when it goes wrong, where you don't re- realize that your hand belongs to you. This seems a rather weird thing. So you're lying in bed, scratching your back of your neck, and you think, whose hand is doing that? What? And we, we instinctively don't have that sense. We, we have the sense that we all belong together. One united with all. So that's the union thought. Uh, so let's now, having got the ideas a little bit uh, in our heads, uh, we'll go through, I've got this the wrong, no I haven't, right way around. Yes. So let's think, is this in the Bible? So I don't want to push it onto the Bible if it's not there, but now we know what to look for. Let's think, do we have this sort of thing in the Bible? So, let's go right right back to the beginning and think about Adam. So Adam was made in the image of God. So notice there's already some sort of likeness there. So, no, I have to be careful how I use language here. Um, Adam is made in the image of God. So um, let's try and use a, let's not use a word. That's Adam. God is like a mountain, but only like a mountain. His uh, he, he is compared to a rock, isn't it? The Lord our rock. But he, he isn't a rock. He is like a rock in some ways. And um, Jesus says God is like a hen. Wanted to gather her chicks. Um, o Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have uh, gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. So there's there's some sort of Mm, I'm trying not to use the word likeness. Okay, there's some some sort of likeness there, but it's not very strong. But Adam is in a strong likeness to God. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? Uh, God's made lots of things, but 
when he made hu- humankind, there is a very strong likeness between God and himself. Uh, when Paul reflects on this, but when Adam sinned, he took his people with him. They were all not tied up in a bundle together. So my favorite illustration of this is bubble wrap. Okay, all of you who have bought anything off eBay have ended up with loads of bubble wrap. Yeah, and it raises the question, if you wanted to buy bubble wrap on it, this is the way Jesus is with his people. It's I and the children you have given me. There's a sort of family grouping there. And uh, if you really want to look into something obscure, if you go into Daniel chapter 7, you'll find the Son of Man there. And uh, there's a parallel between the individual Son of Man and the people. Anyway, that one gets a bit into, uh, into deep water. But there are definitely Old Testament ideas of union, yes? Uh, of one person and union, a bit like the tree and the, uh, the root of the ivy. Okay, now let's come into the New Testament. And I'll just all I'm going to do is just pick up some examples which I hope will help us as we go through. So no, number one, union. Uh, number one, incarnation. Now you might remember that I paused a little bit on this last Sunday and um, I said there's more to this than meets the eye. And I think this is where this is going here. John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now what's happening here in those few words is God, the word, entering union with humanness. The word became flesh. And I'd like to suggest, and I'm suggesting it because the man who wrote the, the book that I've been reading suggested it, and I think he was onto the right thing, that this is, as it were, the beginning of something really quite remarkable. That God, at this point, enters union with humanity. And what happens afterwards sort of comes off that first extraordinary step that God comes down to be one with us in some sense. The huge step of joining humanness with divinity, think what this involves, what it leads to and where it's heading. That was number one. Number two, we've looked at this before, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So here's another huge step change in the way God relates to people that he pours out the Holy Spirit onto sinful people into their hearts as promised and God enters relationship with people uh, because of Jesus. That's what happens on the day of Pentecost. Uh, I'm not going to go very much further into that. We pick up a little bit on it later on. But here are two huge events that have a bearing on union between God and man. Christ becoming flesh, the Spirit being poured out on the church. Here's 
Here's number three. The bride and bridegroom. Now each of the each of the gospels when they start us up on the story of Jesus mention this quite early on. So you get it in uh, Matthew 9:15, Mark 2:18, John 5:34. Can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Do you remember that? It comes it's on the, the, the they're discussing fasting with um, John the Baptist's track record of fasting and they say to Jesus why don't your disciples fast and he says ah oh, the, the, the bridegroom is here how can they, uh, the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them so he flags up at this early stage that he's the bridegroom and that his church is the bride John 2, 1, 2, 11. Anybody know what that is? It isn't quite the same, but it's similar. What happens in John 2, verses 1 to 11? It is, it is the water into wine which takes place at the, at the wedding. A wedding. This seems to me is a new note that is sounded. We didn't get much about wedding in the Old Testament. It's not entirely absent, but when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I want us to think about weddings. I want us to think about the bride and the groom. Now, what happens at a wedding, at a marriage? There is a joyful, loving formation of a new unit where two people become one. So weddings are great. It's a, a, a joyful, u- loving union of two new people. And um, I know some of some of you, to some of you, this is a history lesson. But uh, there is a, a book that was written long ago called Pride and Prejudice, and it was on the BBC a long time ago. And also, Kira Knightley had a version of it, didn't she? And it is the story of uh, Eliza Bennett, who is financially challenged. Jane Austen didn't put it that way, but that's, uh, that, that was the situation. And uh, Mr. Darcy, who is basically a multimillionaire and has this massive um, stately home in Derbyshire called Pemberley. And to begin with, they wouldn't give each other the time of day. But as the story goes through... Uh, Eliza uh, realizes that she's in love with Mr. Darcy and that she will become mistress of Pemberley Hall and uh, all all the hearts beat and and, and they end up being happily married. It's... uh, uh, See how soppy I am because I I quite like this this story. But the, the, the thought of poor Eliza being uh, wrapped by the arms of Mr. Darcy, played by Colin Firth, I hasten to add, and he uh, he endows her with all his wealth. And she was sort of lost, alone, unprotected, unprovided for, and she suddenly becomes um, ennobled, enriched, loved, valued, cherished by this uh, um, wonderful husband. Uh, and, and in marriage, you share together in all kinds of ways. 
And the Bible says this is a deeply true way of understanding what it is to be a Christian. It is for us, Eliza Bennett's, to find our Mr. Darcy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is full of protection and love and enrichment and ennoblement and, uh, and all of those things. And he takes us up into his estate, if you like. And when Paul talks about human marriage, he puts in this little bit. This is human heterosexual marriage, I hasten to add, because the Bible's view of marriage is it's two unlike beings. So a same-sex union is not a marriage in this sense. Well, it's not marriage at all. But this is, this is what uh, the Bible speaks of as marriage. This is a profound mystery, he says, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. There is a profound, true, deep understanding that Christ and his people have a union which we can understand by looking at what marriage is. And it says, and I'm going to look it up, it's in Ephesians chapter 5. It says things like this about this union. It says, Christ loved the church. Which verse am I in? Can't find it. He loved the church. Verse 25. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And this is Christ, the great husband of the church, loving the church, sacrificially giving himself to her to, to uh, take her from the, the gutter, if you like, and uh, to make her beautiful and clean and wholesome and beautiful and radiant. And this is what Christ does for the church to, so that he can marry her, to present her to himself as a radiant church. And it speaks about the duty of husbands to nourish and look after their, uh, their wives. And in verse 29 it says, uh, this is what we do to our own bodies. We nourish and care for our bodies. You know, we put moisturizing cream on our hands and we shampoo our hair and all that sort of thing. And he says, that's what you do with your body. That's what Christ does with the church. He nourishes and cares for the church. We are members of his body. So here is uh, number three, the bride and the bridegroom. This union of love, this union of care, of nourishing and cherishing as of one's own body. This is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is wonderful. This is what you don't have if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four. This one's a quick one. Family. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray begins. Our Father. That's right, isn't it? And you just think, what this is saying that we have a share in the family and that as Jesus can call God his Father, he invites us to say, we can, as it were, kneel alongside him in prayer 
And we can say along with him, our father. So there's a union there of family, which I'm just going to mention and then I'm going to pass by fairly quickly. Number five. Here are some texts where Christ identifies with his people. This is one that we looked at last week. This is the sheep and the goats. Do you remember this one where the the king sits on his throne, has all the nations before him, separates the sheep from the goats, and he says, this is the thing I'm going to look for. Did you do such and such or not do such and such to the least of these my people? And then he says, If you did or didn't do it to the least of these my people, you did or didn't do it to me. And you could easily miss that. But do you notice what he's saying? He's saying that I, the Christ, the King, am in this relationship with my people that if you do something to them, you're doing something to me. We're sort of like one body. It's a bit like saying uh, somebody bumps into your, treads on your toe uh, and... uh, and, and, they, and you say, excuse me, you just hurt me. And they say, oh, I didn't hurt you. I hurt your toe. That's completely different. And you say, no, the toe's part of me. And Jesus is saying, these people are part of me. When the Apostle Paul, who was previously known as Saul, was converted, the risen Jesus Christ spoke to him audibly and directly and said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? What's the next word? Me. Same thing, isn't it? But Saul would have said, no, I'm not persecuting you. I wouldn't dream of doing that. Uh, I'm persecuting your people. And Jesus says, no, it's like my toe. That's me. If you're persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. And you might wonder whether that thought so got into the mind of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, that he began to generate a whole theology of this, of of understanding the relationship between Christ and his people. Anyway, that's a speculation. What you do to them, you do to me, says Jesus. And I stop just to say, that's so important actually, to do things... For Christ's people just because they are Christ's people so it's a very obvious and rather blunt question have you have you done anything for God's people because they are Christ's people uh, so anything you know measurably measurably done uh, one obvious thing is to give money you've done that uh, given service Is there any noticeable way in which you uh, put yourself out to do things for the people of Jesus Christ because they're the people of Jesus Christ? Uh, um, Jesus is not very friendly to consumer Christianity where all you do is take, is he? He's saying, no, I'm actually looking for people who've done something. They omitted to do it. Well, you didn't do, didn't do it to me. If they did it, they did it to me. So it's a question, isn't it? Do, do, uh, have, have you sacrificed anything, put yourself out ever to do things for the people of Jesus Christ because they are the people of Jesus Christ? Anyway, let's move on. Here's another union classic um, 
place in the Bible, which is John chapter, it's on the left-hand side of the page, it's chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now Jesus is contrasting this with the Old Testament version of the vine, which would be the nation of Israel. And people would say, I'm in the vine, here's my birth certificate, which proves that I am ethnically connected to Israel. That's, that's it, that's all that matters. And I think people might still say that today. But Jesus says, no, I'm the vine. And it's no good looking at a birth certificate. What you need to look at is your connection with me. And in John 14, 29, he says, because I live, you also will live. So the life that Jesus has, the risen life, becomes part of the life of his people because they're connected to him. And you know uh, this part very well, of course, where it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're separated, if you're distanced from Christ, then it does you no good at all. So I ask you again, are you joined to Jesus Christ or are you apart from Jesus Christ? And there's a wonderful quotation from Calvin, which I've completely forgotten, where he says something like, if you're separated from Christ, all the promises and all the blessings and all the treasures in him do you no good at all until you are joined to him. And we're joined to him as we come to him in repentance and faith. So the vine and the branches is about being joined together. And if you, have we got any? Are they real? Okay. Uh, imagine then a, uh, a vine, uh, a plant growing with the stems coming off it. And the, the branches live because they are joined to the vine. So we actually got a, Virginia creeper on the other side of our wall and there's one branch that is completely brown and all the leaves are withering because I think it came unstuck from the main thing uh, and it's, it's, it looks as though it's part of it, it's actually dead and Jesus says your and my spiritual life depends on being joined to Jesus Christ and we share in some way which is rather well, it's unseen and, uh, and therefore, I think, difficult to measure. We share a union of shared life like the sap inside the vine, an unseen flow of life. And Jesus um, sort of spells things out and he says, uh, you need to abide in me. So he makes it into a command to remain in me and he talks about remaining in my words if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be given you so he connects this abiding in terms of words so this is the word of scripture these are the inscripturated words if those abide in you then there's fruitfulness 
So it's important that we fill our lives with the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture. And he also talks about it in If my words remain in you, ask what you wish and it will be given you. So there's a there's sort of a, the sap you can't really see because that's, that's hidden. But there's things that are visible like his words, prayer, and he's also going to go on to say obedience. That these things are, if you like, the responsibility side of this union or the responsive side of this union. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. So uh, uh, number six, uh, the vine and the branches. Number seven, the head and the body. So this is uh, spelt out in in detail in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and onwards where it says things like this. The body is a unit, though it is made of many parts, and though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Now, I said I'd come back to the spirit, which is mentioned here. How is one body sort of maintained and, and, uh, and joined? Well, here he says it's the, the work of the spirit. We were baptized, sort of plunged by one spirit into one body, or if you want to put it another way, we all drank the one spirit and there we made one body. So there's a sort of inner, and mm, yeah, I'm going to go with the inner thing, uh, that the spirit works within us and thus produces and sustains this union with Jesus Christ. And when he talks about this particular aspect of union, he... Uh, he's going to talk about unity and diversity. He's going to say that uh, the head is the head, stays the head. The body is the body. So we're not in, um, confused with Jesus Christ. We don't become him. And then he's also going to say that uh, toes remain toes and hands remain hands and your liver and your pancreas remain your liver and your pancreas. And they all work in the body the body submits to Christ. It comes about by the unseen work of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to take this thought on uh, the role that we all play as, uh, as Christians in the body of mutual dependence. We all have something to contribute. Um, we can't say to somebody, I don't need you. He's going to talk about the importance, particularly of the weak and unpresentable. So if we were doing a publicity leaflet for the church, we would obviously choose to put a photograph on the front of the most glamorous and handsome people. And then you think, well, I don't think I'd make the grade on that. Uh, and the, the doctrine of the body says, yeah, but you're the people that, that Jesus is really interested in. He's, uh, there's a special honor given to the weak and the unpresentable parts uh, because that's the way a body is which is a rather lovely thought I think and uh, he's going to talk about the glue of love 
that's what he's going to talk about in chapter 13, and he's going to talk about the importance of each playing their part in the whole. So that's a quick look at this aspect of union, the head and the body. Number eight. Ephesians, which we've looked at, and I think it would have been Ben that took us through this part of Ephesians, talks about the whole Christian life in terms of being in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It says we were chosen in him. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, And he says that it is to the praise of the glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And in verse 7 it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And in verse 9 it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. And he says his ultimate purpose is to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head in Christ. So, uh, just doing this ever so quickly, and doing very well. He encourages us not to think of ourselves as bits of bubble in the bubble wrap. He says, think of yourselves in Christ, because that's the truth about what Christianity is about. It's about bringing people into this union with Christ. Think of ourselves in that context. And context is important. Let me show you. Here's a picture of somebody lying down on a table having their stomach cut open. What should we do? Ring the police? Just look at the context. Pan back a bit. They're in hospital. They're under anaesthetic. This man's a surgeon. Uh, This person's trying to help this person. Yeah? You, You look at the individual thing, you'd think it was a violent act somebody needed to be locked up. But you look at the context, it's a surgery. That's fine. Or think of um, somebody uh, being insulted. And you think, call the police. And then you pan back a little bit, and it's on the stage. They're doing a play. And at the end of it, you're going to give them a round of applause. The context matters, you see. And uh, here's somebody giving a cup of cold water. And you think, well, that's completely insignificant. Cups of cold water are two a penny. And you put it in the context that this is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This person did this because of Jesus. And it takes on a huge new significance. Uh, Here is a scrap of paper that somebody brings to you with a, 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 a sort of circular scrawl and some random smudges on it, and they give it to you, what would you do? Throw it in the bin. Let me just give you the wider context. It's been drawn by a three-year-old. The circle is your face, and the smudges are supposed to say, I love you. You'd, you'd look at it completely differently in that context, wouldn't you? And we're told that we're to look at our lives in the context of Jesus Christ. Just not to look at every little thing um, and evaluate it wrongly, but look at the fact that we're chosen in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven in Christ, purposes for us in Christ, and so on. Right, number nine, the last one, is this really, uh, the, the passage that 
perplexes us. I'll just read it and try not to make it any more confusing than it already is. Shall we go on in sin, says Paul, that grace may abound? And he says, absolutely not. We, oh dear, we who died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we were co-planted with him like this in his death, we will certainly be co-raised with him in his resurrection. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away, that we would no longer be saved to sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that this entire passage is to do with union with Christ. It says that the way you're to understand how we deal with sin has to be embedded in the idea that we are in Christ or with Christ. It's based on union with Christ. It's based on union with him, specifically in the fact that he died and that he rose. And that our union with the Christ who died affects things and our union with the Christ who rose affects things and will affect things. So the fact that he died, it says at least this, the power of his death was an ending and something is terminated in our lives if we are in union with Christ. Something gets killed. There's something that gets killed and uh, just like the leaves on that uh, ivy start to wither. They don't do it immediately, but they. something is terminated in our lives. and That's the grip of sin on us. And his resurrection, something is started in our lives. A new life starts. And risen with him, he says, this is like, see, ancient history again, the roadrunner, the roadrunner. Does anybody remember that cartoon? The, uh, so the, uh, the, the roadrunner and the coyote, wasn't it? So the, the roadrunner was this little bird, and he was always having, uh, uh, um, trying to get the better of the coyote. Uh, or was it the other way around? It's the coyote is trying to get the better roadrunner. So, uh, and the coyote, so they're on the edge of a cliff, and there's a, an, an anvil. This is a cartoon, you have to imagine this. And there's a chain. And the roadrunner, who is a cunning little bird, attaches one end of the chain to the anvil and one end of the chain to the coyote. And the coyote doesn't realize this. And the roadrunner goes like that to the coyote to make fun of him. And while he does this, he pushes the anvil over the edge of the cliff. It's got a long, long chain. And the coyote is sitting there going, I'm going to get you. And the, and the roadrunner is going, and the coyote says, I'm going to get you. And what we can see is that the anvil is going down and the chain is gradually running out and in a moment what's going to happen is the coyote is going to go off the edge of the cliff following the anvil yes but there is a time lag and uh, an anvil is a very heavy piece of metal and that's what's going down the cliff and that's what it's like with the resurrection of Jesus sort of in reverse that He's done something and we're connected to him by a long connection. And it will take a while before his resurrection 
brings us into resurrection, but it's just a matter of time. If we've been raised with, (coughs) if Christ was raised and we belong to him, then at some future point we will be raised too. It's just a matter while that chain pays itself out and then we'll be raised too in him. That was the ninth thing. And he says, you need to think this. Think union. That's how the Christian life is lived. So the nine things we looked at were incarnation, where God took us up into uh, Christ. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where God comes upon and into the lives of his people. The bride and the bridegroom, where union enriches the, uh, the bride and makes her beautiful, makes her one with the, the wonderful bridegroom. Uh, family, well, the, the bond of family. The things done to them are done to me, says Jesus. He reckons those people as himself. The vine and the branches stay in the vine because there's, that's where the life comes through to, um, to enliven us and the, ex, the other side of it being uh, to abide in his word, to abide in prayer and to be, abide in loving obedience. The head and the body and the implications about submission to the head and the functioning together of the body. The fact that we're blessed in Christ and the matter of the, uh, how much we've been given, the context we're in and baptized into Christ, that's the basis for us to live a new life. Those were the nine things. I hope there's something that will be helpful for us. When I was 20-something, I did actually join the NAS UWT, and I probably got my membership card at home in a drawer still. It is a far better thing to be joined to Christ. Be joined to Christ. Be in on these fantastic things that we've been summarizing this morning. If you're apart from Christ, they do you no good whatsoever. Be in him and live it. Let's sing together. 909.